If you've picked up a Bible from the side table, you'll find Revelation chapter 4 beginning on page 1030. We're continuing now in our series through Revelation. I mentioned at the beginning of the service over the next two weeks, we'll take a, a break from the Revelation series focusing on Psalms 36 and 104, and then we'll pick back up at Revelation 5 in a, a few weeks. But this morning, our text, Revelation 4, uh, I want to ask you one more time, if you would stand so that you might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Revelation chapter 4, hear the reading of God's word. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you at once must, and I will show you what may take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast the crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Do you remain standing as we pray? Father, we come to you this morning, as we always are, uh, needy people. Uh, weak and fragile people, and yet, Lord, you tell us that your power is made known, is, is shown to be strong in our weakness. So we ask this morning that you would exalt your power and your strength and your greatness and your majesty and your centrality and your transcendence and your greatness among us. Lord, as you told the Israelites once, as you would bring them out of Egypt, you would show the Egyptians the strength of your right hand. You would show off your glory in the midst of a people who so easily 
missed it. Lord, would you do that for us? Would you show off your glory this morning to a people who so easily miss it and yet so desperately need to see it? Lord, would you build up your church today? Those whom you love, those for whom the blood of Jesus Christ, your Son, was shed. Those who are the very dwelling place of your Holy Spirit. Would you build us up and make much of yourself? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, The Supremacy of God in Preaching, John Piper opens it uh, arguing for the fact that people need the greatness of God, that we need to see it, that we need to be moved by it. Here's how he opens it. I want to quote him at length because I think it's so powerful. He writes, Years ago, during the January prayer week at our church, I decided to preach on the holiness of God from Isaiah 6. I resolved on the first Sunday of the year to unfold a vision of God's holiness found in the first four verses of that chapter. So I preached on the holiness of God and did my best to display the majesty and glory of such a great and holy God. I gave not one word of application to the lives of the people. Application is essential on the normal course of preaching, but I felt led that day to make a test. Would the passionate portrayal of the greatness of God in and of itself meet the needs of people? I didn't realize that not long before this Sunday, one of the young families of our church discovered that their child was being sexually abused by a close relative. It was incredibly traumatic. They were there that Sunday morning and said under that message. Some weeks later, I learned the story. The husband took me aside one Sunday after a service. John, he said, these have been the hardest months of our lives. Do you know what has gotten me through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave me the first week of January it has been the rock we could stand on. And then John Piper concludes, the greatness and the glory of God are relevant. The supreme greatness of the sovereign God of grace, that is the deepest need. Our people are starving for God. As I looked at and meditated on and considered Revelation 4 this week, it just struck me that John Piper is merely agreeing with Jesus in this statement. The reason I thought that was because I realized that Revelation 4 follows Revelation 2 and 3, which as Aaron prayed earlier, is your education dollars paying off. <laughs> but I don't mean I, I merely recognized it chronologically that 4 comes after 2 and 3, but I realized that in the placement of Revelation, the message of Revelation 4 immediately follows the letters of Revelation 2 and 3. Now, think about this for a second. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is writing letters to his churches which are incredibly challenging and difficult. He's telling some of them, you live where Satan's throne is. Where Satan dwells, there's your dwelling place as well. He's told others of them, you're going to be thrown into prison 
and you're going to suffer. And I'm asking you to be faithful even to the point that your lives are taken from you. He's telling others that they need to resist strong temptation around them to compromise the faith. Telling others they're going to suffer economically for their, in, in the midst of their culture if they're going to hold fast to Christ. He tells them they need to persevere and, 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 and hold fast until the end. So, so what do you do then? What do you give a people to, to encourage them and strengthen them? What do you, you give to a people to let them know you're going to be okay? What do you hold out to a people that you've just said you're about to walk through some of the greatest trials in your life? What Jesus gives them is Revelation chapter 4. He gives them the vision of the greatness of the holy God seated on His throne. Jesus' answer to this church to say, how are you going to get through some of the hardest trials of your life is to give them a picture of God, is to pull back the veil, is to open the door of heaven and say, ascend John, come into heaven and look at the one seated on His throne. That is what my churches need. And I don't think it's any mistake in the providence of God that we're at this text today. Because it's not just hypothetical, is it? Some of us are walking through and are going to walk through some of the hardest trials we have ever faced. And if we ask the question, what then do we need? What will sustain us? What will hold us? What will, what will, what will capture me so that it will hold me fast? It seems that Jesus' answer is, Behold, our God, seated on His throne. So this morning, what I want us to do is, I simply want to walk through this text and just unfold the details of what it is that John sees. If Jesus knows that the church in the first century needs that, He knows that we need it as well. So I just want to unfold these details as we walk through the text, and at the end, just give you a note of encouragement John tells us, just, just what I've said so far in verse 1, after this, I, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. We know that from chapter 1 is Jesus. Do you remember? He heard a voice behind him speaking like a trumpet. He turns around and one like the Son of Man is there. He sees Jesus as the risen and glorified and exalted Christ. He sees right there in all His glory. He says, this one who had spoken to me, Jesus, I... He spoke to me again and he said, come up here and I will show you at once must, what must take place after this. Now by after this, some have really packed a lot into that phrase that some have argued now what, what's going to go on then from chapter 4 all the way through the end of Revelation is Jesus showing them what's going to take place at the very, very, very end of time. That this is all distant future stuff. But I don't think that's what's intended by that rephrase after this, what might take place after this. If it is a time indicator in any way, I think what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to show you what's, what must take place in the whole period of the last days. Now, yes, some of it will be at the end, but, but much of it will just fulfill this entire time from the time Jesus ascended to go back to the Father to the time He returns. Especially this vision of Revelation 4 is not something we're supposed to think is distant future, but one that is present reality right now. It may simply also mean, I'm going to show you the next part of the vision. I'll show you what must take place after this. 
And here's what John then says happened. Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And now from this point, he's just going to describe what he sees as he beholds the throne and the one seated on the throne. I just want to lay it out for you in stages. The first thing then that John describes is the majestic glory of God. John describes for us what he sees as the majestic glory of God. John begins his description saying in verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, when we read that verse, we probably have a couple of questions. One, what are these things? Jasper, carnelian, a rainbow with the appearance of an emerald. And two, why is that what John sees? I mean, when you, when you expect him to, to get a vision in heaven and to see the throne room of God and to see God seated on his throne, we don't necessarily expect him to say things like, and I saw Jasper and carnelian, a rainbow, they had the appearance of an emerald. Well, let's first just try to answer the question, what are these things? Well, these were precious stones, some of the most precious stones known in the ancient world. Jasper probably was something like a diamond. Diamonds weren't exactly as they are now because the technology wasn't there to cut them as we do, but uh, very good chance here that this Jasper is just referenced to a diamond, a carnelian, a magnificent uh, red stone, deep red in, in color, the emerald, uh, green stone, a rainbow. Of course, we know what that is. Well, then let's ask the question, why is that what John describes. Why is that what John says he sees, these precious and glorious and, uh, and magnificent stones? I think D.A. Carson uh, is really on to something in an illustration he's used again and again. He, he talks about the fact that his sister has worked among missionaries in a very primitive place for a number of years. In fact, they're so primitive that they just don't know hardly any of the technology we know. There are people who just live off the land, live in the woods, and, and Carson said, suppose that, that you're able to master their language, and suppose you're able to go in there and talk to them, and suppose that you were in conversation with them, and one of them said, tell us about some of the things you know about in your world, and say you wanted to describe to them electricity. Where in the world would you start? I want to talk to you about power that runs over things like vines that go over trees. Well, not really trees. Trees we cut down and then put back up. <laughs> and then something like lightning and the sun can be in your house, right? Where would you even start? Imagine then that a door is open in heaven and you behold the majestic glory of God seated on his throne. Where in the world do you start? I think this is why John sees the most glorious and precious stones of his day because it's the only thing that he could even grasp at that compares. I mean, we're moved by these, aren't we? We see precious stones and we're in awe of them at times, aren't we? No one drives down the road, sees a rainbow in the distance and goes, ah, oh, it's just a rainbow. 
no big deal. Right? We're just caught by the majesty and the glory. I think this is why Ezekiel, when he sees all of this imagery of God, he's trying to describe to us in Ezekiel chapter 1, our call to worship, which you may have been hearing going, what in the world is that? And Ezekiel ends it saying, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Because Ezekiel wants you to know, I'm just trying to get at it. John's not giving us something here to be drawn. He's giving us something here to try to communicate the idea, this is the majestic glory of God. The closest he can get are the most precious, majestic, glorious gems of his day. That's what this vision is giving the, the rainbow. He sees the majestic glory of God. Second, John sees the utter centrality of God. He sees the utter centrality of God. Now I want to talk about verse 4 in detail here in a few minutes, but just note in verse 4 through verse 6... Everything relates to the throne. Around the throne, from the throne, before the throne, just, just note it. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 elders. He'll go on there. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning. He'll go on. A little later in verse 5, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Verse 6, and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, do you see how John's making clear that what he's seeing, everything revolves around the throne. It is centered on the throne. There's no doubt in this vision that God is central. That he's centered, that everything revolves around God. And this is a vision of heaven. Remember from verse 1? There was a standing door, a door standing open in heaven, and he sees God at the centerpiece of heaven. Now, why is that important? Would you remember in Isaiah 55, verse 9? We often quote part of this verse when we say God's ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Well, he begins that verse, Isaiah 55, 9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. Now, when we say that God's thoughts are higher than ours, as the heavens are higher than the earth, we're not talking about elevation, are we? If that were the case, then I would continually remind my short friends that my thoughts are higher than theirs. <laughs> my thoughts are higher than nearly everyone's that I meet. And that's not necessarily to my advantage. Um, this is not a verse about ele elevation, is it? This is not God saying, even as the heavens are just a little higher in elevation than the earth, so my ways are just higher in elevation. They take place way up here, yours take place down here. No, he's saying something about uh, primacy, about superiority, right? As, as, as the heavens uh, are, are the very place in which God is dwelling, there's a certain supremacy about the heavens. The, the things on earth oftentimes are, are merely a shadow of heavenly things, aren't they? 
Well, that's important for us to consider in Revelation 4 when John looks and God is central, the centerpiece in heaven. What it means is if God holds place of centrality, if he is the centerpiece of heaven, then he is most definitely central in the earth as well. If he holds centrality there, then he most definitely holds centrality here. If in heaven every creature is to devote himself to God, how much more then on earth is God to be central in our life? Are we to be obsessed with him? Are we to make our entire lives about God? Everything exists for him. He must be the centerpiece of our lives. So John sees the majestic glory of God, and then he sees the utter centrality of God. Third, he sees the fearful transcendence of God. He sees the fearful transcendence of God. Listen to verse 5 in the first half of verse 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. You see what's going on here is the next thing John sees are, are images that, that clearly project this separateness, this, this distinction, this chasm between him and God. He sees images that say to you, stand back. Don't approach. He sees flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. There may be things in our present day we've created, I, I, I don't know, that can perhaps create the same kind of power and, and, and awesomeness that, that flashes of lightning can. In the ancient world, there was nothing that compared to this. In our day, I don't know if there really is. A few weeks back, I had, I had worked to put these pipes on the end of my gutters, and I'd run them out to places in my yard so that when it rained, the gutters would carry the, the water far away and so it wouldn't gather by my house. And the only way you really know if those are working is to walk out when it's raining. So it was pouring. In the last four months, has it ever lightly rained? So it was pouring. And, and, and I took my umbrella and I walked out and the rain was pouring and I walked out to the side of my house and I walked out a little ways out where I had this end of the gutter and I knelt down to try to observe closely to see if when the water gets in, the way it's supposed to work is the water fills this up and there's a little hole in the bottom and the water can seep out. But if there's a bunch of water, it's supposed to seep out over the top. And so I was trying to look closely in the darkness and see if water was seeping out of the top of this thing. And when I did, I knelt down with my umbrella over me and all of a sudden the sky lit up. And I thought to myself, man, that was close. But before I could even finish thinking that, boom, there was this loud peal of thunder. And it would be embarrassing if I took off running, but I almost wish I had. Because what I did instead is the human equivalent of what a turtle would do when he gets in the shale. I just just went in the fetal position and brought that umbrella down. And uh, I, I didn't even know where, where, where do you run? You run away from things like that. And it just felt like it was all around me, you know? And I shook and I thought, it looks good, let's, you know? And so I went in the house. It was just overwhelming, all-encompassing, awesome display of fearfulness of something that says, Lee, you're small. 
Well, that's what John sees from the throne, flashes of lightning and rumblings and, and peals of thunder that just communicate to him, stay away. Do you remember in Mount Sinai, the Lord God came down to meet with Moses and there were flashes of lightning and peals of thunder and the people said, Moses, we don't want to hear from God. You hear from God because we don't want to die. There's something that just says, stay away. He is other than you. He is awesome. And so there's this separateness. John gets the message. is the flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder. But that's not even it. There's more. He says, around the throne there was the seven spirits of God, which I said earlier in the book, and I think it is here too, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who, who does work in all the churches. The seven churches representing the whole of the church. The seven spirits of God representing the whole of the Spirit doing work in all the churches. But he doesn't just describe Him as the seven spirits of God. Notice how he describes the Spirit in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. You see, the Spirit was communicated in an image of, of fire. Again, something that, that just says, stay back, keep your distance. You're, you're, you're about to entangle yourself with something that's greater than you, something you can't handle, something you need to keep your distance from. And, and nor was that it either. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, seven torches of fire, and verse 6, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. Throughout the Scriptures, the sea is always this intimidating, chaotic barrier and enemy. In Isaiah 27, it is no mistake that Leviathan, the dragon, comes out of the sea, the serpent. It's no mistake in the book of Revelation, the beast comes from the sea. There's no mistake that in the end, when the world is made new and made perfect, there will be no more sea. The sea just represents throughout um, creation, throughout the storyline of the Bible, this, this imagery of something that is chaotic, something that is bigger than us, something that powers over us. No one launches out onto a journey on the sea who's rational without a little bit of fear. Now in this case, the sea is not chaotic because it's before the throne of God. So John says in verse 6, it was like a sea of glass. But nonetheless, the vastness of the sea was there. Flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, seven burning torches of fire, and a sea, all of these things showing John the, the separateness, the distinct, distinctiveness, the, the fact that God is transcendent. He is greater. He is other than we are. The Creator is not merely like the creature, but much greater. This is why when Isaiah looks upon God in Isaiah chapter 6, he feels like he's going to die. Now, I, I'm, I'll just make a quick note, brief sentence of application. Do we really think that it's sensible for any of us, the mere creature, to stand in judgment upon that God? We see... His majestic glory. We see His utter centrality. We see His fearful transcendence. And then we also see the sovereign might of God. 
Not only is God at the center of all things and His majestic glory over all things and His fearful transcendence, but He is almighty. We see that in the second half of verse 6 through verse 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, the way that we like the Bible to work is we like it just to tell us things bluntly and straightforwardly. Almost as if it would say, I know what you want to know, let me just tell you in just a propositional statement. And sometimes the Bible has that. God is love. Right? We read that. Boom, straightforward. In this kind of literature, if you think back to our first week, remember I, I talked about how Revelation is a whole different literary form. It's apocalyptic, where, where instead of saying nations, it'll represent nations and their power, sometimes with a, a beast with horns. Or uh, instead of saying wholeness, it'll use a symbolic number like seven. Or instead of saying all the earth, it'll use a number like four. So it'll talk about the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth. Or instead of referencing the people of God, it'll use the number 12 or, or sometimes the multiples of the number of 12 so that there are 144,000 gathered around the throne. Well, in this case, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6b through 8, I think what this text is showing us is what our God is like. But because it's done in this literary form, it doesn't simply make propositions. It uses these symbols, these images, these creatures to show us something about God. The same kind of creatures we found in Ezekiel chapter 1. I mean, you read this text and you think, I remember that. Or Isaiah 6. It seems to be if you took Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6 and kind of merged them together, that's what you would get here in Revelation 4. The second half of verse 6 through verse 8. These four living creatures are interesting, aren't they? In Revelation, or in Ezekiel, whether you had four, and each of them had four faces. Here, there's just four creatures. Each of them have a face. Uh, one of them has the face of a lion. One the face of an ox. One the face of a human. One the face of an eagle. Why? Because these are showing us something about God. These images uh, communicate to us something true about God. The image of the lion communicates God's royalty. That God reigns over the earth like the, the lion over the, the other animals in the world. God is royal. He reigns. The ox is typically used as an imagery of brute strength and power. God is, is one who has all power, is almighty, even as uh, we read at the end of verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The image of the man is an image of wisdom. And intelligence. God is one who is all wise, who is all knowing, who is perfect in his thinking, perfect in his planning. The image of an eagle, we might not get this if we were just, just thinking about connotations in our own day. I mean, the eagle is obviously swift, keen eyesight, all kinds of uh, things that we can think about his attributes. But in the ancient world, one of the most common references was to the eagle's care. And we made references in Ezekiel 1, but you'll, you'll remember. 
One of the things that was well known and well referenced was the fact that sometimes a mother eagle would take the little eaglets and push them out of the nest. And what would happen in most occasions is the eagle would fall for a while and then get its wings and take off flying. But sometimes the mom would be a bit premature, would think the eaglet's ready. Here we go. Push it out of the nest. And that eagle is not going to start flying. But what the father eagle would do is he would be flying around on watch, on guard, so that if the eaglet weren't going to make it, he could sweep under and bear that eaglet up on his own wings. An image that the Lord has already used with the people of Israel when He says in Exodus 19.4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now consider this for a second. I said I think this represents the sovereign might of God, and it does. That God's in control, that He rules and reigns, But now think about God's might. Think about His rule in light of these four images images here. Because we often think of God's might and we think of it in one sense, don't we? God is just really great. He's he's just mighty. He's just strong. He just possesses power. But that alone is not how His might is presented here. Jesus, in this vision, wants us to know that God's might is one where, like a lion, there is no one over Him. He reigns over everything. Yes, He wants us to know that His his rule, His reign, His might is like an ox, and that, yes, He has all power. He is strong. Not only does He reign over all, but but if He wanted, he He could push against anyone, and no one could withhold His pushing. He is powerful. He is strong. That He is all wise. When we think of the might and the reign of God, do we think of His wisdom? We should. He reigns in wisdom. What He does is wise. What He does is knowledgeable. We're finite, aren't we? We don't see the beginning from the end. We don't see how everything works. And so we stand sometimes and we go, God, I don't get it. And God can say, I reign over all. I am in control, I am mighty, I am strong, and I am wise. And it doesn't just stop there, does it? But he is caring. He is like the eagle that swoops down and bears the eaglet on his wings. That is our God. When God wants to think of his might, he wants us equally to think of his love and his care for us that swoops down in our weakness and bears us up, that is the God of Revelation 4. The one who is all-powerful, who reigns over all, who is all-wise, and who is caring for His people. And yet there's one other element. We've seen the majestic glory of God, the other centrality of God, the fearful transcendence of God, the sovereign might of God, and then finally we see the all-encompassing worship of God. The all-encompassing worship of God. Back up in verse 4, we were told about these elders. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments 
with golden crowns on their heads. Now the question is, what in the world are these things? What in the world are these elders? There's really just two schools of thought. One of them is that these elders must be the saints, must be actually people in heaven, humans there. And the argument would go, obviously they're humans, they're the saints because they're clothed in white garments with golden crowns. Now if you remember back from Revelation 2 and 3, the saints were promised white garments. They were promised crowns. So you would say there they are being adorned with the very things God promised. And that's a possibility. But I don't think they're saints here. I think rather these are some kind of heavenly angelic beings. And the reason I say that is because when you go on through the rest of the book of Revelation, they seem to be distinct from the people of God. Uh, so, for example, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 we read, and when they had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So in Revelation 5, verse 8, these elders are actually offering up to the Lord the prayers of the saints. I don't think the image here is of the saints offering up the prayers of the saints. They're distinct, right? Elders offering up the prayers of the saints. But rather these angelic beings somehow are just mediating Prayers of the saints, here, here they are. Also, when you turn to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, it again seems like the elders are distinct from the multitude of people praising God. Verse 9 of Revelation 7, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the, before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the Lord our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And now he's referencing then others, and the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne in worship. So it seems there's a distinction. So I think these elders are probably some kind of angelic beings, these great angelic beings that I do think, and it kind of brings these two views together a little bit, I do think represent the people of God. I do think represent the redeemed. I think that's why there are 24 of them. Most commentators believe this would be a reference to as if they're representing the redeemed from the old covenant, the 12 tribes, and the redeemed from the new covenant of the 12 apostles, right? So this, this, this number of 24 is just representing the people of God redeemed from both covenants. We also have seen already in the book that angels do represent the people of God sometimes uh, to the angel of the church, right? Right, so the angels represent. So in verse 4, then, if these elders are these angelic beings representing the redeemed people of God, then they're not the only creatures. We, we've also seen reference to these living creatures, four living creatures, face of a lion, face of an ox, face of a human, face of an eagle. Now, remember from week one, and when we looked at the book of Revelation, one of the things that Revelation has are these mixed metaphors, things that, that stand for two things. So you'll see a lion, and then you look at him, and he's a lamb. It doesn't mean they're supposed to hybrid lamb-lion, right? But sometimes things can stand for a couple different images here. Well, I think that's probably what's going on with these four living creatures. Yes, they do show us something about God, something we've already detailed, but also I think they represent God's creation itself. This is why they have a lion and an ox and a human and an eagle. That's why I think there are four of them. 
It's as if it's representing all of God's creation before his throne. So if the four living creatures then are representing the whole of the created order, and the 24 elders are representing the redeemed people of God out of that creation, what then are they doing? We read the answer in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, again showing us the omniscience of God. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. What the four living creatures are then worshiping, what do the elders do? Verse 9, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. These 24 elders and these four living creatures are involved in ceaseless worship. The four living creatures never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And verse 9 says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, the elders fall down and worship. Well, when is that whenever? Verse 9. Always, right? If they never cease to say, And when they say the elders fall down and worship as well, then what it means is the four living creatures and the 24 elders are all continually devoting themselves in worship to God. And if they're representing all of creation and the redeemed people of God, what it's saying to us is God is worthy of all of the worship of all of creation. Most especially of His redeemed. This is our calling to worship God. Everything on the earth was made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The redeemed, we've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's marvelous Son so that we might proclaim His excellencies. We were created to worship God. We were redeemed so that we might worship God. God is due your worship. What this means is, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are in rebellion to the God who is due your worship. God made you to worship Him. And what you're doing right now is what we all did in our sin, is you're exchanging. Now just imagine this. Keep remembering Revelation 4. This image In Romans 1, Paul says, we exchange the glory of God. Revelation 4, God. For the lesser glory of created things and say, I'll worship this created thing rather than the infinitely glorious God. I'll make my life about these created things rather than making my life about God. And Paul says, If you've done that, then the wrath of God is against you. And everyone's done it. The good news is that you being there in your rebellion against God, not giving Him the glory due, not giving Him the honor due, not giving Him the worship from you that He is due merely by the fact that He created you. While you were His enemy, God sent His Son 
so that he could live perfectly obedient, which you did not do and could not do, so that he could die and pay the penalty and take the punishment for the sins of anyone who will place their faith in him. And God raised him from the dead on the third day. Do you see, you have scorned worshiping the one you were created to worship. And yet he shows his love for us in that while we're rebelling against him, while we're sinning against him, he says, I've made a way for you to be reconciled to me. I've made a way so that you don't have to bear my wrath for all of eternity. If you place your faith in Christ, his perfect righteousness is credited to you. Your sins are paid for and you'll be reconciled to God. Objects of his love, uh, the ones who will hear on the final day, welcome into my kingdom. But if you refuse to bow the knee, if you refuse to place your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, by whom you can be reconciled to God, then on that final day you'll be thrown into a lake of fire forever and ever. So I plead with you to be reconciled to God. If you're not a believer, I plead with you to do that this morning. If you are a believer, let's ask the question, why? Why Revelation 4? Why is Revelation 4 encouraging to the churches that Jesus wrote to in Revelation 2 and 3? Why is it encouraging to us? Why did Jesus know that they would need that vision in their day? And why did Jesus know we would need this vision right now? And here's my answer. Up to this point in the book, he's made clear again and again that he loves us. We're loved by our God. Jesus is called in chapter 1, verse 5, the one who loves us and freed us from our sins. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He was disciplining them and he wanted them to know, I love you. The reason I think we need Revelation chapter 4 is because that might fall on our ears a little too lightly. You're loved by God. We might say, ah, what's the big deal? This is the God who says that to you. This God. The God of majestic glory, the God of utter centrality, the God of fearful transcendence, the God of sovereign might, the God who is due the worship of everyone and everything, the God who is so utterly beyond us, who reigns in royalty and power and strength and wisdom and care. That God loves you. That God loves me. Right now. Can you then imagine what Paul is saying when he says, if God is for you, who could be against you? Who could be against you? We have a great enemy, but we have an infinitely greater God. And he loves us. And he manifested his love for us by sending his son to live and die and to be raised for us. So this morning, let's just take a moment of silence. In this moment of silence, the ushers will come forward, the musicians will come together. And then we're going to take of this bread and take of this cup, remembering 
that it was God. God the Son. This glorious, infinitely glorious God who took on flesh and died for me and you so that we wouldn't have to pay for the penalty of our sins. We'll be singing as we distribute the elements. And can it be, just, just marveling at the fact, can it be that you, my God, would die for me? But we're going to take a moment of silence before we come to the table. And in this moment of silence, may you use it just to reflect on and marvel at and give thanks to our great, majestic, gloriously holy God who loves us today. Let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to come to the table.